Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to open the scriptures and to hear from you. Um, Lord, as a dad, I know how important it is that I spend time with my kids and that I talk with my kids and that I listen to my kids so that we can build our relationship. Father, we come acknowledging you're our dad and we speak to you in prayer and you, you speak to us through scripture and we invite you to send the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures which you've inspired to be written so that Father, we would hear your voice, that we would have a change of heart and mind and that as a result, our relationship and our life with you would either begin today for those who are not Christian or would grow and flourish today for those who are Christian. In Jesus' good name, amen. Let me start by saying there's two kinds of people. There's people who stay in the car and there's people who get out of the car. I'll tell you a story. Grace and I have got five kids and it wasn't that long ago, we, we went out to dinner and, uh, and, and we went to dinner because I can't cook um, and, and Grace needed a night off. So we, we go out to dinner and we pull into the restaurant and tell me if you've ever had this experience, you're driving around the parking lot and literally every single parking place is taken. There's nowhere to park. And I've got five kids and I think to myself, you know, this, this restaurant's pretty blessed. I brought a bucket of money and my six favorite people and I'm trying to share this blessing with this restaurant and they, they have not accommodated us with sufficient parking. I kind of feel like a victim if I'm honest. And so we're driving around the parking lot and I finally reached the point where it feels like it's been long enough to me. So like a minute. And, um, and, then, and then I see a whole bay of parking spaces that are available and they are marked uh, takeout orders only. You seen those? You're not allowed to park there if you're going in to eat. You're only allowed to park there for a few minutes if you're going in to get your food, put it in your car, and take it and eat it at your home. Well, I think to myself, um, I'm kind of a victim. The, 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 I wanna share my money and people. Um, would be a horrible thing to rob this restaurant of this tremendous blessing that I have in the suburban. In addition, um, we usually order more food than we eat and we do take it out in a box. So technically, according to the letter of the law, this is a takeout order. And uh, so I parked in one of those spots that says takeout order only, get my keys, jump out of the car, I'm walking into the restaurant, a few of the kids are with me, I go to open the door and I've only got a few of my children, not all of my children. So I look at these children and I ask, where are the other children? They said, we don't know, they're in the car. I said, okay, well, you guys go in, get a table, order some appetizers, and let me go figure out what's going on. I go back to the car, 
and there are a few of my children sitting in the car in protest. I'm being protested by my own children. And they look at me, I said, what are you doing? They said, we refuse, we refuse to get out of the car because the sign says, take out only. You know we're going in to eat. That's a violation of a clear rule posted on a sign. We are protesting, we will not get out of the car. You have violated the rule on the sign. And so these are my Old Testament children. My New Testament children <laughs> are in the restaurant eating appetizers. Meanwhile, my Old Testament children are sitting in the car obeying the letter of the law, okay? So I get into a negotiation with my children. And I'm like, hey, you know what? It's not a big deal. We're kind of victims. There's nowhere to park. Hey, it's the new covenants, the season of grace. Your mom's name is Grace. Let's all go in and have dinner with her, okay? My children argue, no, that is not what the sign says, that you are disobeying the law. That is a violation of the law. That is the breaking of the law. Dad, we will not break the law. And all of a sudden I realize, as a father, I probably should not encourage my children to violate rules and disobey authority. So I got in the car and tried to repark the car and it took a while. How many of you are like my kids who stayed in the car? You are rule keepers. You're law abiders. If there's a way to do something, you need to do it that way. You're the person, you go to Ikea, they give you the directions, you read them before you put the furniture together, right? Okay, how many of you are, are, are like, like my other kids? Right? I'm not really like that. I feel rules are suggestions and everything's in pencil. And, you know, there is no Olive Garden police. So this isn't really a law to begin with. They're not gonna arrest you for parking in the takeaway. Okay, for those of you who are the law keepers, you're the rule abiders, you're the authority recognizers, you're those people who are like, if that's what it says, that's what I do. I keep the rules and the law. What can happen is you reach a point where you failed, where you can't keep the rules. And, and let's say you're a Christian and you read God's rules and you reach a point where you start to grow a little disheartened. Your, your heart starts to condemn you. you. You say, man, there's so many good things in here that I don't do. There's so many rules and laws in here that I don't obey. So all of us at certain points, our hearts condemn us as we read the scriptures and it reveals who we are. But some of you, you have tender conscience and you're rule keepers. And it may cause you to even have a misperception of the character of God. Now, as we find our place in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, he knows this. He knows how, how all of us are some of the time and how some of us are all of the time that we hear what we're supposed to do, we evaluate our shortcomings and our hearts condemn us and we grow disheartened, okay? So for those of you who are just joining us, let me just read a few sections from 1 John and just listen. Here are some things that he has said previously and let me ask you what your response is, what your reaction is in hearing them. He says previously, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, big word, and do not practice the truth. He goes on to say elsewhere, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Another big word, and the truth is not in him. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. A blind liar. Those are big words. He goes on to say elsewhere, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Do you love anything in this world? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He goes on to say, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Is there any habitual sin in your life? 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. By this it is evident that we are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Liars, blinded, children of the devil, murderers from the heart. Lastly, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How do you feel? A little beat up, amen? For those of you with a tender conscience, saying, I came here thinking I was a Christian. Now I think I'm a bad Christian, maybe a non-Christian. If that's what God posts on the sign, and I'm disobeying all of that, what does that say about me? My heart condemns me. Knowing that all of us some of the time, and some of us all of the time, tend to feel a little beat up and our hearts condemning us, before he proceeds forward, right here in the middle of this great letter, uh, John wants to explain to us how we should feel emotionally and respond practically to God's law. And his first point is this, uh, Jesus took your beating, so don't beat yourself up. Sometimes religious people literally think if they harm themselves emotionally, physically, spiritually, that somehow they're paying God back, they're paying God off, they're appeasing God's wrath, and they forget that Jesus already did that for us in our place. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. What he's trying to take here is a, is a broken heart or at least a troubled heart and to reassure it. For those of you who have a particularly tender conscience, you're the law abiders and the rule keepers and the, the authority respecters. He wants to reassure your heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, does your heart ever condemn you? You know yourself well, and sometimes you're horrified and mortified by who you really are. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. What he's talking about here is who ultimately has judgment seed in our life. Uh, this author, John, he's Jesus' best friend. He was like a little brother to Jesus. He was there for all of Jesus' life and ministry. All of the other disciples, the early followers of Jesus who were leaders, they all died, starting with his brother who died a martyr's death. At this point, he's between 80 and 100 years of age. He writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He also writes the Gospel of John, the story of the life of Jesus. And he writes the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it leans into the future and it shows us what happens at the end of human history. Uh, that book of the Bible is 22 chapters long and in 17 of the 22 chapters on roughly 45 occasions, it shows us a particular piece of furniture called a throne. And it shows us that all of human history is moving toward this throne. And that throne is one of kingship and rulership and judgeship. And there's one who's seated on the throne and he alone passes judgment over everyone who has ever lived. And what John tells us is that it is God alone who sits on that throne that you and I don't sit on the throne. That you and I will not sit on the throne at the end of time and render an eternal verdict regarding ourselves. We won't. So when you and I get to heaven, there won't be a mirror to where we're the center and the highest authority, there will be a throne and seated on it will not be any of us. Now, positively, this means that no one is gonna sit on that throne and judge you, okay? So we don't sit on a throne and judge each other forever. 
Negatively, it also means that we don't get to sit on a throne and judge ourselves. That Jesus sits on the throne and will pass before the throne and that ultimately Jesus will be the one to whom we give an account for our entire life. And here's what it says. He knows what? Everything. No one knows everything about you except for Jesus and you. And Jesus actually knows you better than you know you. There are secret, shameful sins in our life. There are hidden things. There are things that we've said and done. There's, there's motives and inclinations and longings and desires that no one has access to. They don't even know, except for he knows everything. So you're going to pass before the Lord Jesus, seated on a throne. There will be a judgment for all people from all times and all places. And he knows everything. There's nothing that can be hidden from him Hearing that, here's my question. Does your heart condemn you? Mine does. How are you going to stand before Jesus and be like, actually, he's like, don't, don't, don't talk. I don't need more information. Right? Don't disagree with me because we know who's wrong. Right? Your heart condemns you. All of us, if we take God's word seriously and we take God's holiness seriously, we take Jesus' judgment seriously, at some point in our life, our heart condemns us. For those of you who have a particularly tender conscience, oftentimes your heart condemns you. And, and I believe, uh, having been a pastor for a little while, that the heart condemns us oftentimes through one of two things. Number one, terrible conduct, or number two, tender conscience. Sometimes it's, ten, it, it's rather uh, terrible conduct. You look back on your life and there are things that you've done, or maybe there's just one big thing that you've done, and it's a terrible thing. And as a result, your heart condemns you. You say, okay, let's talk about that. Like, ah, I, I can't even talk about that. That is shameful. That is horrible. That is inexcusable. That is regrettable. Right? Some of you have had abortions. Some of you have committed adultery. Some of you have caused a divorce, not out of biblical reasons, but out of unbiblical reasons. Some of you have stolen money. Some of you have done violence. Some of you have raised a hand in anger against a child. I mean, there are things that we've all done that as we look back, we say, that was terrible conduct. Maybe at the time I had an excuse. I had a reason. I had someone to blame. But honestly, when I look at it, from God's perspective, and when I stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he knows everything, I'll get away with nothing. Terrible conduct. Also tender conscience. Some of you have tender conscience, meaning um, it doesn't take a big thing for you to feel like your heart is condemning you. Every little thing just feels like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's like life is a series of bee stings. I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. And it may not be one big thing, but it's a constant onslaught of a whole bunch of little things that are faults and flaws and failures of yours. And the result is, either way, your heart condemns you. And if you are a person with terrible conduct and a tender conscience, and you put those together, and you do something horrific, now you're in a desperate place spiritually. This is where people fall into deep depression. This is where people feel absolutely rejected by God. They feel completely and totally separated from God. And people find themselves in very desperate places. And we tend to respond in one of two ways when our hearts condemn us, religion or rebellion, 
Uh, religion is where we say we double down, we make more rules, we try harder. God, I failed last time, but I'll never fail again. And rebellion is where we say, I can't keep God's rules. I tried my best. His rules are impossible. Therefore, if I'm going to rebel, I'm going to break all of God's rules. How many of you are more religious and you double down when your heart condemns you? Try harder. How many of you are more rebellious? I can't keep these rules, so I'm going to break all of them. And John knows this, and he's a pastor with the Father heart of God, and he wants to help us all rightly relate to God. And let me say this. Some of you would think that as you become a Christian and grow in your relationship with God, that you might feel better about yourself. Okay, I've had this said to me many times by new Christians. Pastor Mark, I was reading the Bible, and it doesn't work. Okay. One guy in particular I could still remember. I said, what do you mean it doesn't work? He said, well, the more I read it, the worse I feel. I said, well, then it's working, okay? Because the number one attribute of God that is listed more than any other is God's holiness. And as the more we come to know the God of the Bible and we come to know ourselves, the more we realize how unlike we are the God of the Bible. And the result is that we see our sin more clearly as we draw closer to God more nearly. Um, let me give you an illustration. Let's say you are you know, out hiking in the woods somewhere. It's late at night. And, and it's very dark and you get lost. You've been out on a hike too long and the sun is set and now you're completely lost and you've lost your way. And you're trying to find your way back towards civilization. You're feeling a little anxious and panicked. You trip, you fall, but you can't really see if anything has happened to you because it's so dark out. Eventually you wander and you notice that there's a house in the distance and they've got a light on and you think, okay, finally, I've got my way out and you start following the light. Well, the closer you walk to the light, all of a sudden, um, you could start to see yourself and you realize you're dirty. The closer you draw to the house and the more the light impresses itself upon you, the more you realize how really dirty you are. It's like that with the Lord. The closer we draw to the Lord and the closer that the Lord draws to us, the more light of his illumination and truth arrives in our lives, the more we realize our sins, our faults, our flaws, our failures, the more we start to see who we really are and what we've really done and what condition we really have. See, John knows that. Some of you feel that. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are living that today. And here's what he says. Um, go back, please. He says, uh, we could reassure our hearts because when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Here's the thing. God knows exactly who you are, and he fully forgives you. He completely loves you, and he entirely embraces you. Not because you're lovely, but because he's loving. Not because you're good, but because he's good. Not because you've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it. He died in your place for your sin. He traded places with you. He took your sin, gave you his righteousness. As a result, your heart might condemn you, but it is Jesus who saves you. And that's how your heart is to be reassured. Some of you will continually condemn yourself and in so doing, you might think that you're actually honoring God, but you're actually dishonoring God. When God says you're forgiven, then you're forgiven. When God says you're loved, then you're loved. 
where God says you're righteous in Christ, if you have faith in Him, then you have the righteousness of Christ. And to beat yourself up when Jesus has already taken your beating is not only a bad thing for you to do, it's also a dishonorable thing in His sight. This is where the storyline of the Bible is something called good news. This is really good news. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. And he speaks love, he speaks forgiveness, he speaks life, he speaks hope into your heart from his heart. And so don't beat yourself up if Jesus has already taken a beating for you. And what this means is a couple of things. Number one, that a God is more merciful than some of us are to ourselves. <laughs> that God is more merciful to us than oftentimes we are to ourselves. I look at myself and I think if I were God, would I forgive that guy and put up with that guy and work with that guy? And the answer is, I would not. But God is more merciful to me than I am to me. And you need to know that God is often more merciful to you than you are to you. Now, some of you would ask, then what's to keep us from just sinning? It's the love of God and it's the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's not the fear of punishment. He's going to tell us in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. Some of you live waiting for God to punish you. God already punished Jesus for you and he loves you and he's more merciful to you than you are to yourself. That's why it's good news. Number two, what you feel about yourself needs to be submitted to what God says about you. So you may condemn yourself in your heart, but if God speaks something different and contrary to what you say about yourself, you're not the highest authority or the final authority in your life. God's word is, and when God says that you're forgiven, you're forgiven. When God says that you're loved, you're loved. When God says that you're accepted, you're accepted. That's the good news. He then proceeds forward. He talked here about Jesus. He's going to focus on the Father and then the Holy Spirit. But 1 John 3, 21 through 22, he said that God the Father welcomes you. Beloved, okay, that's who you are in Christ. This is the father heart of God. This is like a dad looking at his kids, right? Think of a little kid, little boy, little girl. What's a good parent do? They get down, they look him in the eye. I love you. I need you to listen to me. We need to talk about something now. That's the heart of God. This is like a dad looking his kids in the eye. And sometimes we get older and we think, well, I'm not a child now, I'm an adult. Well, in God's eyes, we're always kids and we always need our dad. And this is your condition in Christ. Your hearts might condemn you, and then God calls you beloved. He also will call you repeatedly in this book, his dear children. Right? Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And then he's going to talk a bit about prayer. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. When Grace and I wrote a marriage book, we talk about three kinds of relationships. There's back-to-back. -back. Those are relationships that enemies have. They're shoulder to shoulder. Those are relationships that coworkers have. And there's face to face. Those are relationships that friends have. When the Bible talks about being face to face with God or, or, or seeing God's face or meeting with God's face, it'll use this language. It says in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see in part, but one day we'll see Jesus face to face. When he uses that language, that's the language of intimate friendship and love, relationship. And when it talks about before God, he's talking about us 
literally coming before God, that God's face is set toward us and our face is set before God. The reformers used to call this living quorum Deo, living in the face of God. Okay? You and I are going to come face to face with the Lord Jesus at the end of human history. And all of our days are to be lived in light of that day. Now, as you read the Bible, when people come face to face with God, what's their experience? <laughs> Oftentimes not confidence before God. God, I'm here. Right? Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, in the Old Testament, he sees God, right? Sort of the curtains pull back in history. And he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. And I thought to myself, woe to me, I'm, a, I'm doomed. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips and I have seen the Lord. I've come face to face with the Lord. And Isaiah is terrified. He is mortified. And at that point, he's actually a godly man. He's a servant of God. When people come before God, they usually feel absolutely inadequate. They feel sinful. They, they sometimes feel dread or terror. Uh, this man, John, who writes this, he also writes a book called Revelation, as I told you. And in chapter one, he talks about an encounter where Jesus comes back from heaven after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And, and John says, I saw him and I fell down as though dead, dead. And here he's saying, but there is a way to have confidence before God. And he is contrasting here two, two responses, two heart conditions, uh, one that is confident and one that is condemned. And when he's talking about the heart that feels condemned before God, because you either don't know the Lord Jesus or you don't fully understand who you are in the Lord Jesus, the beloved, the adopted of the Father, the forgiven, when you don't understand that and your heart condemns you, what he says is, um, you will run from God that you will disobey God, that you will not make requests of God because you ultimately see God as a harsh dictator, as a very cruel ruler. If you see God, let me say this about you. One of the most important things about you is what you think about God. That's one of the most important things about you is what you think about God in general and Jesus Christ in particular. And if you think God is a harsh dictator and he sees and knows all and he doesn't love you and he wants to condemn you and he wants to harm you and he wants to punish you and he wants to make you pay, you're gonna run from him, not to him. You're not gonna make any requests of him and invite him into the details of your life. And you're certainly not going to obey him because he's not good and he's not safe, amen? That's the condemned heart. The confident heart sees God as loving father. And what the, what the confident heart does, it runs to the father, right? Have you ever seen a little kid when they're scared, when they feel in danger, if they have a parent who loves them, where do they run? They run to the parent because the parent is the safe place. See, for us who are children of God, God the father is the safe place. You're saying, I'm tempted, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. I, 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 my heart is condemning me. I need to run to the father. I need to get with the Lord. Because ultimately, the, the confident heart wants to obey the Lord. And ultimately, the confident heart makes requests of the Lord. This is prayer. 
And the confident heart knows that if we ask in the will of God, then the answer is always yes. Because when we pray, there's three options. Just like a child making a request of a parent, the answer could be no. The answer could be later. The answer could be yes. The confident heart that sees itself as the beloved child of God sees God as a loving father who sees and knows all yet loves us in spite of ourselves and is devoted and committed to us out of the goodness of his own character. Well, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he says pleases him. And when he's talking about prayer here, um, he's echoing something that Jesus taught him. And this is what Jesus taught John in John chapter 16 Uh, 23 and 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, so this is how we pray. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name and through the mediatorship of Jesus to God the Father. That's how we pray as Christians. That's one of the reasons we name this the Trinity Church. Some churches will focus a lot on the Father, some on the Son, some on the Holy Spirit. We love all three members of the Trinity. We wanna live, we wanna pray, we wanna study, we wanna grow by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the mediatorship and relationship with Jesus to the glory of God the Father. That's what prayer is as well. Whatever you ask, he says, of the Father in my name, he will give it to you and you will receive that your joy may be full. And asking in Jesus' name there is whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. He's talking about praying in the will of God. When we pray in the will of God, we can be confident that the Father will always answer yes. So I've got five kids. Let's say one of my kids comes up, Dad, can I read the Bible? Answer? Yes, every time it's yes. Dad, can you pray for me? Answer is? Yes, that's in my will. Dad, can I light off bottle rockets in the house? Answer is? No, because that's not in my will, okay? That God's a Father and we come to Him with requests and the more that we spend time in His presence and time in His Word, we come to understand what God's will is. We run to Him, we want to obey Him, we make requests of Him in full confidence that our dad hears, knows, sees all and loves to answer yes to children who bring their requests to Him. This transforms prayer. Let me say that the one thing I could tell you that'll transform your prayer life more than anything is not to focus on your prayer life, but to focus on God as Father. This is why when they come to Jesus, Jesus teaches to pray. He says, here's how you pray, our Father. When you understand the Father heart of God, your prayer life is absolutely liberated. Absolutely liberated. You're like, well, if he's my dad, then I'm gonna talk to him. And I'm gonna ask him for help and I'm gonna bring him my needs and my burdens and my cares. And and when I'm excited, I wanna share that with him. And when I'm struggling, I wanna share that with him as well. People who struggle with prayer don't struggle, struggle with prayer. They struggle with understanding God as Father. Okay? So what they'll do then, they'll put together lists of rules on how to discipline themselves to have a better prayer life. And I would say that may not be bad, but the best thing would be to get to know God as Father. Because if you know that your Father loves you and you know His heart toward you, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna run to Him, you're gonna talk to Him, you're gonna make requests of Him so that you can obey Him. That's the whole point here. That's the whole point. So I was trying to figure out how to give you an image of this. I'll share with you a picture. You ever seen this photo before? Okay, who's seated at the desk? In that day, JFK, the most powerful man alive on the earth. And, and what is he sitting at? Right? 
a piece of history and stature. Right? This is the Oval Office, and here's the president's desk where every president has sat, and from that place, they literally rule with authority as the most important person on the earth. Okay? Now, let's say you and I were going to today get invited into the Oval Office and to come before the president's desk where he is seated as our commander-in-chief, ruling over the most powerful nation in the world, would we have confidence before him? Yes or no? No, we'd be feeling a little insecure, like I hope I don't say or do anything wrong. I feel a little out of place. I, I just want to abide by protocol and not get myself in trouble. Okay, so who's under the desk? His son. See, the, the son has a relationship with the father that is very different than everyone else has with the president. You get that? Now, what the, what the, what the child doesn't understand is, true or false, no one else gets to do this. Right? Right? You understand that? Right? If, you, if, if you're sitting there like, the Secret Service is under the desk. That's weird. Okay? Oh, there's the, you know, Prime Minister of whatever nation or, you know, whatever third world dictator is under the desk with a lollipop. That is, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Because there are, there are things that, that the child can do that no one else can do. There is access that the child has that no one else has. And there's a, there's a comfort and a confidence and a welcoming that a child has with their father that no one else has with their father. You get that? If you are a Christian, you are a child of God and God is your father. And, and your father rules not only over a nation, he rules over all nations, peoples, times, and places. The Bible speaks of our father as high and exalted and ruling over all, including the demonic. There's nothing that's apart from his sovereign rule. And when our hearts condemn us, and we think, oh my gosh, I'm coming before him, then what brings us comfort and reassures our hearts in his presence is, and he's my dad. And he knows me, and he loves me, and he welcomes me, because he's here to help me. You get that? That's the father heart of God. Some of you didn't have a dad, so this all sounds very foreign to you. You had a bad dad. Well, God is a father to the fatherless, and he's a perfect father. But that's the father heart of God. And what I love about this picture, it looks like dad is very important, and doing very important things, but the child is as important as anything that the father is doing. You are God's child if you are in Christ, and the father welcomes you, and you are important to him, and whatever he is working on, he always has time to welcome you, to hear from you, and to spend time with you. That's the point that John is trying to make. What this does, this transforms our relationship with God and it unleashes our prayer life with God. Lastly, he's spoken about Jesus, the Father, and now he'll speak of the Holy Spirit, and that is that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Say, so how do I learn these things? How do I do these things? How do I obey these things? 1 John 3, 23 through 24, and this is his commandment, right? So God's a Father who does have some things written on the sign posted over the parking space. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and believing in the name is believing in the totality of the person and work, and love one another. So there is a vertical relationship where we love Jesus and believe in him. There's a horizontal relationship where we love other Christians 
because we're like a family of brothers and sisters, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. All right, this is the, the confident heart that says, my father loves me, he knows me. When he tells me something, it is for his glory and my good. So I want to obey him and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. How is all of this made possible? This is all effect, and here we find ourselves at cause. All of this is fruit, here we find ourselves at root. Don't read everything previously as something that you have to do for God. Hear it as something that God does in you and God does through you because of what Jesus has done for you. Let me explain all of this. How are you gonna have confidence before God? How are you going to know the love of God? How will you run to God? How will you obey God? How will you pray to God? How will you make requests to God? How will you grow in relationship with God? How will you believe in the Lord Jesus? How will you be nice to other people and love them with the love of God? How are you going to do all of that? If you're a religious person, you're going to start making a list of things to do and not do, and you're going to seek to self-discipline yourself to do the things you're supposed to do and not do the things you're not supposed to do, and you're going to fall right back into that same trap where your heart condemns you because you can't even keep God's list or your own list. And the way out of all of this is by the Spirit whom He's given us. So let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's why we called ourselves the Trinity Church. It's one of the reasons. We love the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I want you to have a relationship with the Father and a relationship with the Son and a relationship with the Spirit. And there is one God, three persons, and much teaching or traditions will emphasize one or the other at the expense of another. So those of you who grew up in churches that talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, maybe you didn't learn as much about Jesus or the Father. Some of you grew up learning a lot about the Father and or Jesus. You didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're a brand new Christian or non-Christian. It's all new to you. Welcome. Let me tell you about the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is the first overt time in 1 John, if memory serves me correct, that the person of the Holy Spirit really comes to the fore and the forefront. He may have been intimated at previously, but this is really where he is unveiled fully for the first time. First of all, the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. He is God. Not just an impersonal force like that in Star Wars or pantheism or panentheism that would say that there is some supernatural force that indwells the trees and the animals and the people and it's some sort of life force of which God is a part. No, not at all. God is a father, not a force, and the Holy Spirit is a person. And that doesn't mean that he occupies a physical body because he doesn't, but it does mean that he can be related to, spoken to, heard from, that he can be grieved that you can break his heart because God the Holy Spirit is, is God, a personal being without a physical body. That's the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. So he is God, he is a personal God, and he empowered the life and ministry of Jesus. One of the most transforming things I've ever seen in the Scripture is in the Gospel of Luke. I can't get into all of it today, but I encourage you to read your Bible. And this week I'd say just read a book in your Bible called Luke. And Luke is the story of the life of Jesus. It's a chronological biography 
written by a physician who's kind of the Indiana Jones of the New Testament out doing all of his research. And he talks a lot about the relationship between God the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we hear people say, you need to be spirit-filled, it causes concern because sometimes who they point to as the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit and the most spiritual is sometimes the most peculiar people, saying and doing some of the most peculiar things. The key to the whole Bible is to take everything and connect it to the person and the work of Jesus. And if at any point what we're studying doesn't connect to the person and work of Jesus, it ends up off at least a little bit. This is what Jesus says in John 5. He says, um, you search the scriptures. He's arguing with the theologians in his day, saying, um, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you'll find eternal life. You fail to recognize that these scriptures testify about me, and you refuse to come to me for life. What Jesus says is, you guys have memorized whole books of the Bible, but you don't know what any of it means because you don't love me. The whole point of the Bible is Jesus. And once you get Jesus, that's the key that unlocks all the rest of the understanding of Scripture. Uh, this is what Jesus does at the end of Luke's gospel. He hosts a few Bible studies, and, he, and it says that in the Psalms and the law and the prophets, which is the genres of Old Testament literature, that he taught them how the whole Bible was about him. Okay? So when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, his ministry makes the most sense when we see his ministry in the life of Jesus. So you read the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus came up out of the water and that the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove and God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what this shows is that Jesus' life and ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the Gospels adds the caveat that the Holy Spirit rested or remained on him. You read the rest of Luke's gospel, it says like Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, that Jesus says things like the hand of the Lord is upon me. That's nomenclature for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God, become fully man. Here's my question. How does Jesus live his life? How does he pray? How does he obey? How does he grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God? How does he say no to sin? How does he endure hardship? How does he forgive his enemies? How does he love his family? How does he do all of that? By the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God on the earth, that Jesus was God in heaven, he was God on earth, he is God in heaven today, he never ceased to be God. But here's what I would say, he did not continually avail himself to his divine attributes, meaning he didn't cheat. When he was tempted, he was really tempted, as we are. This is where Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, for he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. When it says that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God, well, God doesn't need to learn or grow. But Jesus, in identifying with us in his full humanity, he set aside the continual use of his divine attributes to identify with us. You say, well, how did he learn the Bible? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How did he grow in wisdom and favor with God and man? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus was, while on the earth, and is, while in heaven today, fully God. But he lived his life like we live our life, and he lived his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what this means. To be spirit-filled is to be like Jesus. 
It's to be like Jesus. You say, I want to be like Jesus. Well, then you're going to need the Holy Spirit. You can't live the life of Jesus apart from the power of the Holy Spirit because it was the power of the Holy Spirit who empowered the life and ministry of Jesus. And that's where he is going. Um, We know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. At the very end, John's asking the how question. How can we live this life where God's our father and our hearts don't condemn us and we run to him, not from him, so that we can obey him and not disobey him. We can believe in Jesus as our savior and our substitute and our Lord, and we can love one another. How are we gonna do all that? He says, by the spirit whom he's given us. By the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So what the Holy Spirit does, he takes the work of Jesus for you and he places it in you. So Jesus' death on the cross was for you. His resurrection from death was for you and the Holy Spirit applies that to you. That causes you to be born again, to become a new person with a new nature and new desires and new power by the Holy Spirit. How many of you have met Jesus and all of a sudden you realize there is change happening in you at the deepest levels? Man, what I used to wanna do, I don't wanna do that anymore. I wanna obey God. I used to run from God and hope he didn't see what I was doing. Now I run to God because I know he sees what I'm doing and I need his help, he's my dad. I used to not like reading my Bible. Next thing you know, I'm really liking this book he wrote. I wasn't praying very much and all of a sudden I'm driving in my car and I'm talking to God and I realize something's happened in me. All of a sudden I am changing from the inside out. That's because the Holy Spirit takes Jesus' work for you and he places it in you to begin this transformation process through you. And then the rest of life, the Holy Spirit is teaching you and changing you and reshaping you and making you more and more and more and more and more and more like like Jesus like Jesus, without sin and holy. And, and Jesus is the normal for what humanity is supposed to look like. The rest of us are sinful and abnormal. And so Jesus dies to forgive our sin. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to change us from the deepest levels. And then the Holy Spirit wants to work with us, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that when God speaks, we listen. When God orders, we obey. Uh, when God calls to us, we respond. When God teaches us, we learn. And so it is this submitting to, yielding to, being aware of the Holy Spirit that allows us to obey all that John is teaching and all that Jesus was modeling. You'll hear people say, I love Jesus. My question would be, do you love the Holy Spirit? You'll hear people say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. My question would be, do you have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit? Because you need one if you want to become like Jesus. And what he says is that the Holy Spirit um, is the one who um, abides in us as we abide in Christ. It's this ongoing source of life and transformation and truth and the life of Jesus taking root in our life and then over time flourishing so that our life becomes increasingly more fruitful as parts of our life get more surrendered to the Lord Jesus. And it is less of who we were that is living and more of who he is that is living in us and through us. And let me say, if you wanna grow in your relationship with the Holy Spirit, the easiest way to do that is two things. It's like two oars on a boat. It's prayer and Bible reading. If I could just tell you to start with anything, it would be to start with that. In Bible reading, we hear from God and in prayer, we talk to God. This is how the Holy Spirit does deep work within us. 
that the Holy Spirit inspired the writings of the scriptures. He wrote this book through human beings. And as we read the words that the Holy Spirit is inspired to be written, they do a transformative work in us. And I believe that the word of God absolutely transforms people at the deepest levels in a supernatural way. I believe that. That the word of God ingested, studied, understood by you. It makes you more like Jesus. It reveals to you who you are in Christ. It unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So it's Bible reading and prayer. So as you read the word of God, study the word of God, memorize the word of God, meditate on the word of God, and here John is writing for us the word of God, then what happens is we hear from God. And then we respond to God in prayer. This is where we talk to him about the things that he is talking to us about. And that conversational loop is what grows our relationship with the father in the same way that a child who has a father who loves them and pursues them and initiates with them and listens to them, that child then responds by responding to the conversation that the father initiates. And through those conversations, the father is able to instruct and direct the child and the child grows to understand and know the love of the father. God's a dad like that. He speaks to us through his word and he listens to us through prayer. And that's how the relationship is formed. So if you wanna grow, in your personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, I would submit to you Bible reading and prayer. And he just talked to us in the previous section about coming with confidence before him. He's talking about prayer. And all of this, he is writing the word of God. And so he is modeling it for us. And what he says is the result in closing is that three things are transformed. The head, the heart, the hands. The head, the heart, the hands. But if the Holy Spirit is working in you and the word of God is informing and shaping you, In your head, you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, right? Your head begins to think God's thoughts after him. You start to believe and understand and know and trust the person of Jesus, that your head is transformed. How many of you have had this experience? You say, I know the Holy Spirit's in me because my head is different than it used to be. I think very differently than I used to think, okay? And in the heart, right? You know that the Holy Spirit's in you when the heart begins to change. You, you love one another. All of a sudden you're like, there is a source of love in me that is beyond me, that is separate from me. It is God's love in me and through me. And now I just have this desire to love people. And I wasn't a very loving person before. I was actually a very selfish person, or I was a very angry person, or I was a very bitter person. And now I'm a loving person. I can't figure out what happened. And then I remind myself, oh, the Holy Spirit that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us, the scriptures say. Your head changes, I believe in Jesus. Your heart changes, I wanna love people because I'm a loved person. And then your hands change. Um, You keep his commandments. How I live is changing, what I do changes. How I go forth and live my life, that changes Not so that God would accept me, but because in Christ he already has. Not so that God would love me, but because in Christ he already does. Not because I have to, but because the Holy Spirit has caused me to want to. So then the Christian life is actually the most joyful, satisfying, and fulfilled life. Because as we receive the Father heart of God, we share the Father heart of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we obey the heart of God. And we live in relationship like a kid with their dad, hand in hand, walking through the journey of life. And the Father is instructing and directing. And we are learning and growing and obeying and conversing. 
And the Christian life is really taking your dad's hand and walking with him. Following in the example of Jesus, your big brother, by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, who enabled Jesus to live his life, empowers you to live a life that is patterned after the life of Jesus. It's a supernatural life. How many of you today, you walked into our time together and your heart was condemning you? Your heart was condemning you. And you didn't have confidence before God that he loved you, that he forgives you in Christ, that he welcomes you, that you're his beloved. Okay, that's you. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pray for you in our closing time together. There's no need to come in here with your heart condemning you and not leave with confidence in your heart. So if that's you, and you came in here today and you are burdened either by something you have done or failed to do, that you have looked either at your past and terrible conduct or perhaps with a tender conscience, and as a result, there is a burden of condemnation that has really been heavy weighted upon you. It has almost marked you and marred you, and it is... uh, a wound that you carry with you. If that is you here today, I want to pray for you and let's invite the Holy Spirit to remove that burden and that condemnation from you to bring confidence to you so that you can leave here with a new relationship with God. Not marked by condemnation, but by confidence, okay? If that's you and you'd like to be prayed for, would you just raise your hand and we could pray for you? Okay, Father God, I thank you for an opportunity Um, to invite the Holy Spirit right now to comfort my friends. Lord, our hearts condemn us. Some of us have had terrible conduct. There are things that we have done that we just regret. The more we get to know you and the more we get to know ourselves, there are things that we feel haunted by and ashamed of. Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Holy Spirit, I invite you to bring life and peace and joy and healing, to bring confidence of the Father's affection to these people, that God, they would walk here not, walk out of here not with a condemned heart, but with a confident heart, not seeking to hide from you, but to run to you, not to keep from you the most painful parts of their life, but to bring to you for healing and forgiveness the most painful parts of their past. Holy Spirit, would you please bring the life of Jesus into the life of these friends? Would they know that they are beloved, that they stand, Lord Jesus, in your righteousness? Would they experience that joy of their salvation? Would they receive the good news as not just true news, but true news that is good news? Father God, I pray for my friends that you would send the Holy Spirit to fill them, that you would send the Holy Spirit to encourage them, that you would send the Holy Spirit to empower them, and that if they came here with a condemned heart, that they would leave here with a confident heart in Jesus' name, confident in your love, your forgiveness, your healing, your cleansing, your devotion, your commitment. Uh, Father, thank you that you're our Father. Lord Jesus, thank you that you lived without sin, that you died in our place for our sins, that you rose to conquer our enemies of sin and death, and that you have sent the Holy Spirit to impart and deposit your life in our life. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill us. We invite you to instruct us. We invite you to transform us so that we might become increasingly like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.